0: Yes, I haven't um, prepped anything for tonight. Um, I've noticed recently my brain refuses to prep <laughs> for things. Uh, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. But um, what it does perhaps um, allow us is a space, or what we would like to do, is actually just open the space. Um, I've, you know, Just to see where you are and anything we can respond to in terms of what you're with. Um, what's happening for you um, around the practice or around life how the practice intersects life I'm very aware that this um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the evening this has been a really very um, impactful week brutalising week really with the news from Orlando at the beginning of the week last weekend Um, and sort of all the reactivity and heightened dialogue and um, rhetoric around that, which is activated as all, I'm sure, in some way or another, and then, you know, that's sort of in some ways reflecting a very polarised, increasingly polarised <coughs> culture here, um, which is also being reflected in other countries, other situation, not just in America. I was saying about England that... Uh, they have this vote coming up this coming week. And it's extremely—I've never seen anything like that actually. Um, what usually, it's sort of fairly mild and calm British landscapes. Is sort of very people are very um, become you know, a lot of hate-filled rhetoric and blaming, and and then across Europe as well in France is so sort of hasn't been recorded very much in the papers, but sort of many many people out in the streets, and sort of a lot of. Demonstrations shutting down um, the facilities. um, The French really get out there when they're unhappy, and um, you know uh, that's been happening. And then you know, just just, it's just a lot of intensity (laughs) in one way or another. um, That's um, back in South Africa, where as Eugene was saying, where we've worked for many years. It's it's almost like we've known been in relationship with SFI. right from probably, what, 2000 or so, um, when we started and Wosemoyos, 2001. So that was still in the sort of slight euphoric phase of the liberation post-apartheid, and then now it's circling back to a whole deeper level of reckoning Mm -hmm. in the society, and it feels very uncertain where that will all go. Um, There's a lot of undelivered promises Mm -hmm. and hope, you know, dashed hopes, because, one, you know, the depth of these systems don't, you know, the trauma and the depth of damage doesn't just magically disappear, even with the great influence of Mr Mandela and so on. And so, Yeah, so there's a sort of feeling of tectonic plates shifting, Um, and it's very destabilizing, I think, emotionally, psychologically, and it's sometimes hard to find ground, and it feels really important to gather together in communities and just check in, how are we doing with all of this? And maybe in, in your own lives, things are going well, which is great. So it's always good to hear about good things, wholesome things. and Or maybe you feel quite impacted, maybe you feel upset, maybe you feel overwhelmed. So these are the sorts of things we, we can all go through. So just open up the space and see if there's anything you want to say or ask about or report in terms of your life. yes sir. You the
1: mic? Yeah, you gotta move, use the mic. It's part of the SFI duca, <laughs> and turn it around, and you'll face us. Oh, no, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah.
2: Great. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Robin. Um, this is actually my first time um, in the group. You're welcome. Um, thank you. So I've been. Um, I came to San Francisco about six months ago, um, and I'm here with a company we're working in for 18 months. And I was crossing the street um, last week, and um, I kind of noticed that, um, like over the course of the day, people had been looking at me in a sort of admiring way. And I noticed that every time that would happen, I, my shoulders would kind of hunch over, and I'd kind of go a little low. And then I heard my subconscious say, oh, well, don't look at me, I'm just another person. And I talked with my friend um, about um, false modesty and false arrogance being the same thing. Mm -hmm. And and so what my question is, is um, how do you deal with, um, you know, with all of us, it's life going high, going low, prestige, ego self-abasing and trying to just progress in life in general Um, how does a person learn to really just be you know, not to abase themselves not to be self-aggrandizing but to really just say well yeah, this is where I am, this is what I'm doing and whether it seems impressive or not, this is just what it is and um, and to really be comfortable and secure in that, Um, whether people are praising or criticizing and really just saying you know, I mean, you know, not with pride, not with condescension, not you know, worshiping anybody else, but you know, coming from a place of actual sin And just to give you um, perspective, um, I've been meditating for about at this point almost eighteen years, um, and I've done transcendental, vipassanas and. But, um, I mean, as you guys know, the further you think you get, the, you know, you begin to learn that you don't know anything. You know, I could put an extra in there to, like, really emphasize, you know, the, you know, profundity of, you know, the ignorance that you can run into. every wants to know how that reminds you that you really have to stay focused more than anything else. So, yeah, my question in short is, like, how does one stay focused on just being what it is that they are?
1: Great question. Okay. Sure. Sure. Oh, please stay, up in case you know we, we talk a little. I never. We never know what's going to happen. Um, uh, great question. Of course, it's a question that everybody is here for, whether we know it or not. Which is, what is it to be real? What is it to be what we are, or yeah, what we are? I like the word "what" rather than "who," because "what" it, it uh, implies a broader sense of being, which you are already pointing at. And so, what does it mean to be, or to just be, and then to be comfortable with that? And there, and you mentioned a number of different. Um, a ways one can aggrandize or, you know, deny ourselves or things like that. And so part of the dukkha that we're all working with is some of its psychological dukkha. And it comes different ways for different people, sometimes from our family, often from our society, or from the different stratas of power in society. And we're all working with that so that we can start to be free of it instead of bound into that the habit of those patterns that are created for all of us because we're so sensitive as beings. And, and, and it's one of the beautiful things of human beings is actually how sensitive we are. And of course we all end up thinking we're not so sensitive but if any of us is around the baby. I mean, you just see, oh, it's, the baby is totally sensitive. The little kids are totally sensitive. And really, that's us, right? We're all sensitive. And we develop our maturity and our skills and our capacities to work with the dukkha and the goodness of life. Um, but the losing touch with the beingness is the, is the underlying dukkha for all of us. Right? And so, um, of course, we don't have one answer, right? And there is no one answer that I know of to your question, but the question is part of the investigative factor of the Dharma. And and I love that part of the Dharma. I love how much mindfulness is encouraged and now taught everywhere, but it's only one of the factors of awakening right? And investigation right next to it and it's so important to let the investigative quality of our heart and mind come forward to discover just what you're asking about because that's right here is where it is, right? This is where the answer to your question is. And the practices can help support that just as you've done for, I think you said, 18 years right? Just sitting down and being with what's here starts to reveal what's here, right? And it so um, goes against the normal strain of what we're taught and told to do in this, in Western culture, which is, it's it's about human doing, not about human being. And you're asking about human being, which is the real part of being human that satisfies our heart and mind. It's, you know, I mean, it's all all the other things are good. It's good to do things. It's good to accomplish things. It's great to study. It's great to learn. Great relationships and family and friends and community and culture. All good. And then the beingness that's underneath that is essential as far as I can tell. And so devoting oneself to that, I believe, is that's how it shows up. And maybe you want to add or say anything,
3: if you'd like.
0: Oh, just, a piece. Yeah. Pardon? Oh, just a small piece. Yeah, sure, please. Uh, well, I also want to uh, thank you for bringing. I think it's a really important area to contemplate and be with, and so what came to my mind listening to, to you, Eugene, around this. Um, about how much we are encouraged to project a persona, and um, particularly, I think in this culture, Western culture, but even more so maybe in American culture, and a lot is judged by that persona, and it's and it's quite painful because it's it's not that real, and and it, it brings back all sorts of resonances. So I think that inquiry into what is authentic, what is my authentic expression, um, and sometimes we're not. All extroverts, or we're not all able to play that game as fluidly as we think other people are. We don't always know. Um, so, so it brings up the question: Can I be comfortable in my own skin? And, and often we're not because of these socialized cultural conditionings. And what came to my mind is how different. Um, I've just been thinking about it, writing a little bit about this different cultures um, and what the value system is in different cultures. And one of the value systems of our modern culture is to be individualistic, (coughs) to be smart, to be quick, to have the right answer uh, first. (laughs) So, um, And then working, say, for example, in deep rural KwaZulu, where where we've worked for many years, I noticed the, the, the values there are about... Um, you know, if you ask someone a question in the community, people go into a huddle to decide what the right answer is. And because the value is about, it's a longer process, it's not about being right or quick or individual, but it's about belonging. It's about saying we've come to a, a response that helps us all feel we belong and we're all part of this collective. Um, so, so we have to understand how these cultural contexts Contexts uh, context uh, influence us and dislocate us. And I think some of what you're talking about is that feeling of wondering and dislocation and trying to figure out how we find our way back to being authentic. Um, and it's always nice when we are, you know. And we're not always in the sort of societies that that's easy to do, but it's nice to know it's important. <laughs> I think this is why we try and meet here, you know, like being in silence together, it's a moment of authenticity, actually. You don't have to perform. Or, you know. But thank you for the inquiry. It's a good one, definitely. Any, any,
1: anything yeah. else?
2: Um, I guess like when you guys were talking, the thing that kind of came to my mind was um, I'm super big on achievement and results. Oh. Um, I'm really big on achievement and results. Uh-huh. And I have this saying. I say, people, you can always tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you know, making money or doing some kind of, you know, outrageous thing. But you know, just having a certain countenance or energy that one exudes. But yeah, I I always feel like it's, um, you know, I was asking this question recently: doing as a means to what? you know, why survive? Why do well? Why progress? As a means to what? <laughs> and, um, and you know, and I feel like it has something to do with inner light. Um, but yeah I figured that you guys could probably shed some light or maybe pose another question that I could mm-hmm. ruminate on. But I want to thank you.
1: Sure. Thank you. Let me add something. I appreciate uh, what you're saying about why because it's part of the investigative factor and we can also add in the traditional Buddhist teaching because the Buddha was very encouraging of people who are not monastics to be very successful he said and then contemplate how to use your success for the benefit of all And that's that's a different way of thinking than our usual culture.
3: Thank you.
0: Just one last thought. I think that then that might beg the question, what is success? Yeah, for us individually and collectively.
1: Or even individual, yeah. he talked about financial yeah. success. The wow. Buddha, you know, yeah. said, "Oh, yeah, that's a good that's,
0: thing." That also was applied to the monastics. And yeah. the Idi Pada framework of four factors of success, four Nothing. qualities. Actually, it's a teaching called the Idi Pada, which means pathways to power. Yeah, 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 yeah that's, <laughs> that's right. Um, or, but it meant more. Well, I guess worldly power as well as spiritual power. Yeah, yeah. The first factor being called Chanda which means it's a, it's a positive force of deva- desire. Yeah. It means like enthusiasm, zest, interest. Yeah. You know, that that's... Um, and then the, the second quality is called uh, um, Virya, which is uh, energy. Mm-hmm. You know, so that often we start something, we have a lot of energy but then we collapse, you know, when it gets difficult <laughs> or we give up. So to pace yourself so if you're going to carry something out, you've got um, a steady kind of energy for it. You're not know, just going up and down all over the place. The third factor is called jitta, which means heart or mind or samadhi, implied in that, that you actually, partly that you connect what you're doing to hearts. And in that way, um, there's both the implication that there's some samadhi or gathering or focus, but also the heart is connected with an interconnected truth so if you're just kind of going out and want to be successful but you've got no heart in it then actually you can be successful but you're not going to be very fulfilled you know as I know people have been hugely successful but they don't feel it they can't absorb it in the heart they can't because they're not connected also in the web of life and offering it back in a way that's feeding them and then the last one's called Mungsa which means to feedback It means to continually contemplate, how's this going? Do I need to change course? So when those four are in harmony and informing each other, then you have the foundations for bringing to completion whatever you're setting out, whether it's spiritually or in a worldly sense. And what you often find in our culture is that people have a lot of chanda, they have a lot of zeal, they have a lot of um, energy. Um, but sometimes they don't have the Somali in the heart, you know, in the business world. Um, or people get very stuck in feedback loops, how will it go, and then they become frozen because they think, overthink, and then think themselves into a sort of state of, and, you know, they can't move. So, so those were, that's a very interesting template for considering success.
4: Been, uh, reading your book and discussing it together. Stand this particular book called "Time to Stand Up," and I want to read all three titles <laughs> because it gives a good idea of how um, much this covers. So the main title is "Time to Stand Up," and the second uh, subtitle is "An Engaged Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth." So there's. Um, so much here, beautiful uh, reflections on the climate movement and what's um, happening, this emergency um, for our Earth. And the third one is the Buddha's life and message through feminine eyes, and of course all these things are related, but I wonder, I don't know if you've been speaking about your book, this, this book. Um, and if you have, or even if you haven't, whether you could say a few things about why you wrote this book and what kind of um, reception, you know, what kinds of questions and um, you're getting in response from people that have begun to read it.
0: Thank you. Um, That Um, I wrote the book because I was invited to write it, and it's part of a sacred activism series where various uh, there was, I think, a collection of about eight books, maybe published by North Atlantic Press, North Atlantic Books, who operate out of Berkeley, and that was instigated by. Uh, sorry, if you just was, he just was—he was with Sister Abby, Andrew, 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 Andrew Harvey. Uh, Andrew Harvey. <laughs> sorry, his a, a very dear friend, whose um, <laughs> <laughs> his name I forgot. But, um, who, um, who's very passionate um, about activism, sacred activism. So, and then it was under a timeline, so it was a rather pressurised process. So. Um, and it also was very timely for me, because there was a lot brewing away in my process around these themes. There was both the very old theme of um, in Buddhist institutions working with gender inequity, traditional Buddhist, and, and, um, and connecting that with um, dominant and marginal cultures, you know, the dominant culture of patriarchy, capitalism, white supremacy, <laughs> um, and so on. And, and how that shapes, you know, that's shaped in a way in colonialism. I've been working in well, came originally from Britain, um, which is a big colonial power in history. And um, although my parentage is Irish, so it's a, so I'm sort of a bit schizoid around that. But um, <laughs> both colonized and, and colonizer, and a long time in South Africa, 22 years observing the absolute um, devastation of the colonial mindset for everyone, actually. I mean, it's obvious in many ways, although it's very deep and profound, the trauma in the black community, but it's also there in the white, Indian, and other communities, how it is um, a sort of a, it's a lie in a racial supremacy is a, is, a, is, a, is a very deeply conditioned, centuries of conditioning. So, to to look at all of that and look at the economic systems that we operate from, um, to look at patriarchy, which is a, you know, it's not, you know, it's it's sort of the primacy of men is one aspect, but it's really the primacy of ownership and the sense of having entitlement of ownership. So, it doesn't necessarily cut along the gender lines, um, although there are issues to do with gender. but it's a way we all we all internalize these systems, um, because they're so old, and and it sort of led us to it sort of desold a sacredness um, from the earth at a very profound level, and that's that's that process has led us to the place where we can, you know, where we're de- de- you know we create we're sort of creating sacrilege on the earth and extracting to the point that we're actually in danger of. Of crashing our whole human civilization and making it, you know, it's going to be unsustainable. The trajectory on that's very clear, and it's already too late for many species and for many ecosystems. So it was a way of trying to diagnose, using the template of the four truths, to first of all diagnose the situation, and you know, to actually just lay out the effects of how we've lived, where it's, where it's brought it us to, and then the causes. Um, and it's also a bit of a challenge to Buddhist structures, you know, Buddhist, um, Buddhism. You know, can Buddhism and religious structures, can it, can we meet with these old structures without really doing an internal house clean of how, the, how these systems of hierarchy, patriarchy, um, racism and so on operate within all Buddhist structures, actually, in some way or another. Um, you know, can we really meet the challenges that are that are coming our way and already on our doorstep if we're if we're already coming if we're operating from a conditioned system and haven't challenged the very systems we're coming from, especially religious and spiritual systems, because really the the you know, the third noble truth, the way of liberation, the way of freedom from all of that is through this, the spiritual, really, is through the it's not, you, know, you can have a system to change, but if you don't have a change of consciousness that inhabits that system, it's just going to be the same story. Power, power mongering, control, um, and wars, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's a lot of, and if you look at any change movement, the place of faith-based Spiritual um, power in them has been very significant. Whether it be civil rights, whether it be Satyagraha in India, um, whether it be solidarity in Poland against communism, what, what you know, you realize the enormous power that the, the, the heart of faith or anti-apartheid. You know, all of these systems crashed um, for many reasons, but one of the very strong. Uh, challenges would come from the spiritual energy energy of faith so so what would it take us in our practice to bring forth that energy um, together because it's also these are such big issues we can't really address them individually it's too overwhelming so we have to collectively not only come together as Buddhists but across faiths and across activist, activist groups and so on and so on So, looking at all of that and then trying to really um, pin it all back into the template or or the precedent already set by the Buddha, because there's a lot of critique about, well, this this sense that Buddhas shouldn't be activists or the Buddha is not political, but you actually, when you go back into the early stories of the Buddha, you realise he was... You know, he kind of broke down a civilization, actually. He wasn't only really political, but he got out there and challenged the system so much that he had death threats, that he was undermined. He was, you know, he he, he um, seriously upset the the ruling um, power structure of his time. And probably as a result of that, some of the latter-day doctoring, maybe, off the suitors, <laughs> are questionable, particularly when it comes to how women are placed in that narrative.
1: Explain
0: now the, the earliest teachings that are recorded, when the Buddha passed over, the, it, for three, four hundred years, nothing was written down. It was an oral tradition and there were probably nearly twenty schools that emerged very immediately and spread out. You know, So there was a lot of movement and creativity and energy and then it sort of After 100 years or so, it kind of all got kind of collapsed into um, the right teaching. (laughs) And one of the main instigators of that um, was actually formerly a Brahmin. And was, you know, obviously was a pretty strict um, guy and perhaps was something of, I mean, this might be, you know, God forbid, I'm not going to be struck down by a piece of lightning right now, but (laughs) he did, did appear to be a little bit of a maybe. Not that in, endeared towards women in, in the sangha, and, and of course, one of the things that the Buddha did was was ordain women, which was considered extremely radical. and slaves and out of caste, so that so all of that premise of the hierarchy of race, um, gender, all of that was was levelled. Yeah. So he was radical, and and in a way, he got turned into a conservative more of a conservative voice so that actually when you look at the suttas you have these different voices you have the radical voice and then you have these odd things that come in that you think how could he say that and then there's this really misogynistic piece <laughs> where did that come from so it's a bit of a challenge to say let's look at this and really what's important here anyway what's the spirit of what he did what do we know that he did and what is, how does that speak to us now so I try to capture all of that in the book by using the template of the Four Truths and then the life story of the Buddha himself. Um, and and in, in terms of how it's landed, it's hard to know. I would say that it's possibly been sort of somewhat ignored by the main Buddhist um, outlets. But it's landing in the right place by the people that kind of are interested in having support for things they've been struggling with or trying to figure out for a long time. So I get a lot of very positive feedback from marg- marginal groups, really, in the Dharma. Um, and and it and also how it was presented in some of the mainstream Buddhist things was rather cherry-picked. So it came over, a few of the articles came over a bit odd. and You can't control that when you're an author sometimes. And, and the, you know, so... Um, and I haven't really had the energy to track it all or promote it very much because it came fast on the back of the other book, you know, so I just wrote it and it went out there and, and you know, and as an author, it's horrible to read what you've written, you know, because you're just like, oh, my God, I can't bear So I sort of, it's like this slightly abandoned baby and I need to do something about it and try and give it a little energy and support, but thank you for doing so <laughs> yourself. I appreciate it.
5: Um, well, just tagging on to that, the um, online program that you and Kitasaro designed, um, I'm just wondering at this point, I know you guys are going to take sort of a sabbatical or something, but I'm just wondering, could you describe that for people uh, a little bit so they know what it is and how do people access that? Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, I'm asking because I, I personally have started this, year-long training thing four times and finished it twice, and it is such a rich banquet of of offerings in a way that is so, um, if you get in the groove with it, your life will change and be better in a lot of ways. What happened
1: to your life? Tell us a little more about that.
5: I have a long practice of a, of a Mahayana Buddhist stream. So one of the things happened was just a, 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 an amazing integration of these two different streams of Theravada and, and Mahayana for me. Because a third, a third of the practice at the end of this um, year-long thing, the last third, is uh, Mahayana bodhisattva kinds of practices, Quan Yin practice, that sort of thing. Um, so that, uh, on a very idiosyncratic personal level. Uh, but the um, access to a little bit more what it might feel like to be a monastic, just in having chanting and more devotional practices, um, is, is a really important piece of what I got out of it. And also just the tons of the poly concepts that are in it are things that I had not been exposed to. Um, so just you know words that capture so much about how do you pay attention to your mind, how do you pay attention to your life. It's just so uh, rich with that. So I feel like when I get done with some of the other things I'm doing, I want to go back and repeat it again. So that's my little advertisement for, <laughs> you know, I do a lot of different Dharma things, but there's so much there that, uh, that I want to go back and do it again at some point, and uh, I'm always, um, you know, I've done it with a group, which was incredible. Some of those people are here. Uh, I've done it by myself, which was also great. Um, but I would, I would love to uh, do it again either way. But if there were people who wanted to gather with the sangha to, to practice with that some way together, then um, I would love to be a part of that. So how people access it at this point, um, uh, I don't know what the latest is. You guys like created, something where people can do, kind of do it self-directed? Yeah, it's,
0: it's, um uh, it's on our website, which is the Dharmagiri website. It's a little mm-hmm. hidden, actually. I should get it a little more up on a men- its own menu tab. I think it's under it just says Dharma online. But um, I, I, myself and then Sumedha, who worked with me, we used to send it out every week. We don't do that anymore because it was hard to do in the end, mm-hmm. over a year. So what we've done is all the material is online, and people can. Um, it's available. It's on a Dharma basis. You can access all the material. Uh, it's ten modules for each section. There's three sections. You can download. There's little suitor pieces, inquiry questions, Dharma talks, uh, little meditation tips. So, um, and then you can pace yourself. So people are doing it individually or in small groups. And then once a month we have a telephone call and I send out a reminder and people sending questions. And it's very small, it's it's not a big thing, but it kind of jogs along. It's been going since 2008. And it's, it's you know, gone through many iterations. And people, we did it for people in South Africa originally who are geographically very disparate. and They don't have a sangha. Um, and then it just sort of took off, and it's gone all over the place. And you know, it's one of these roving things. That, um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, um, I think it's got a kind of an overview of Theravada and then the Mahayana principles. Yeah. Thank you for a plug. Yeah,
5: yeah, so dharmagiri.org, if anybody's interested, like maybe over time, I I don't have the time to start into the whole thing myself right this second, but I would love to (coughs) see new energy about that in our Sangha, so if anybody's interested, come
0: find me. Yeah, and I need to update some of the material as well, which I'll do, because some of it's a little old.
1: Um, of course I think about it a little differently, which is if Kitty Saranton is removed here, we can offer them SFI as a venue to do it live which would be quite interesting, yeah. and I believe we could attract a lot of people to a class like that if you were interested, yeah,
0: so to, I'm pushing It's yeah. not right yeah. yeah. so if, it's when. Where, where, <laughs> it's
1: <laughs> after your sabbatical, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but really, it'd be great yeah. If, yeah. if you were interested in and totally. it's the right thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's actually nice to go through the classical frameworks, because it's, it's actually something people should learn. It's like learning musical scales. Just to learn these, you know, um, four foundations, four truths, three characteristics, twelve links, you know, all the numbers, but it's actually, you can then work within the frameworks and place things. So to have a working knowledge of that uh, territory is really helpful. Mm. Thank you.
1: Speak a little uh, louder. Closer to the mic helps.
3: Okay. It's been a hard week.
4: Hmm.
3: And what I've been telling myself is let my heart break. It's what human hearts do. Yeah. It's what human hearts do. Mm. And the other piece that is uh, where I found encouragement, where I found a sense of ah, is I'm hearing a lot. Love wins. And each time I find myself tightening and getting angry by reminding myself by telling myself love wins it does if it weren't true we would have all been gone long ago Mm -hmm. looking at the devastation and cruelty that we have incurred on on each other over the millennia, love wins.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it, it feels um, it feels like a terrible process or sacrifice almost to go through that le- learning again mm. and again, <laughs> but to have faith that that's true, mm. you know, that the heart shines through regardless. Um, but yeah, I agree, it's very raw and heartbreaking to, you know, literally to feel, I might f- feel the heart is literally feels kind of scraped um, with what's been happening yeah, and what happened in Orlando. Um, yeah. I notice
3: mm-hmm. that. it's much more difficult, it's much more unpleasant when I harden Yeah when I, um, when, I when I harden around yeah. uh, that instead of just letting it in letting my heart break mm-hmm. Yeah. for all those lovely, lovely people
0: Yeah. and their yeah. families and friends Man, that's uh, terrible Yeah, what? youthful, beautiful, creative energy. Yeah. It, um, and, you know, it's, uh, I think, working with our, the impact on ourselves and as a society to understand the causes and conditions are very complex and the tendency to create these narratives that hijack and um, distort the picture um, and also to warn us, you know, this is a warning that uh, there has to be a protection. To protect, you uh, from, from having the ability through hate to destroy it, so people's lives and take their lives. You know. um, so, I, you know, it's an ongoing battle. That. It's not the moment to talk about that uh, when one's heart's breaking, but there's also a need to understand that it's important to say it's enough. (laughs) There's
3: a limit. uh, One of the questions Mm. that I have, uh, it's been one of my life's questions, is so what's to be my response? Mm. Exactly and moving from that place of brokenness Mm -hmm. to find what emerges that is true Mm -hmm. that's not, at least for me, it's not... it doesn't come from being angry or Wanting to strike out, Mm. but what's just that thing Mm. to do? And it's a hard question. It
0: is. It's a really hard question.
1: We've known each other a long time, so I feel comfortable adding on to what you're saying even though I'm going to be a little different than what you're saying um, I think there's a place for the anger, I think there's a place for fury Mm. I don't think it's just a place to act out of but it's a place to start to get comfortable with that energy and be aware of that because as that energy gets liberated here it brings clarity and discernment and uh, motivation with it, and it can be it's got a very Manjushri kind of sword of, real, of realness which is needed sometimes because saying enough like, that's important that's not just being nice, right? There's a ferocity
3: of it, it that is so clean because it doesn't feel encumbered by the um, the wish to harm right but an absolute this is where I stand. Right. And I am not moving right
1: And that is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's in the Buddhist teaching in my understanding. The Buddha stood for what he understood and he lived it all the way to freedom even when he couldn't affect the cultural circumstances at times. And when he could, he did. But both things happened for him. And so they'll happen, I assume, for us, because I think of the Buddha as an archetype that we're entering, right? And so the, uh, uh, and it's the, the warrior archetype is part of Buddhism. And it's not about killing, but it's about getting real in a way that says no at times, and not, not acting that out, but living that in a real way with its fierce compassion.
0: Yeah, I think um, leading on from what you're saying, and, and something I talk about in the book is examples of those that have done that through history. Many, many examples, and continuing to stand against the force of hatred and bigotry and all of the you know things that we know have been
1: against the forces of ignorance.
0: Force of ignorance, you know, inwardly and outwardly. You know, it's not just inwardly, it's also, so you say the Buddha tried to stop wars. He, didn't, he actually didn't always succeed, but he would go out and try, and that's the important thing. Mm-hmm. To step people down from violence, um, put boundaries around, you know, to protect. Um, advise generals, kings, politicians, so he engaged those realms <laughs> to think we should abdicate from them is actually not in accordance with the example he gave. Um, and then we see these spiritual, great spirituals like Mr. Mandela, who did, I mean, he did, he was a warrior, but then he, he, he worked through, right? I can not imagine, the levels of anger he must have felt, rage and being incarcerated for so long, but then used all of that to transform a whole nation, at least for a time. Of critical time, and um, you know, saying, "Well, you know, if you uh, if you keep hating your enemies, it's like drinking poison, hoping they will die." Mm-hmm. You know, so so so. The point is to feel what we feel, mm-hmm. but then to transmute that into skillful action and response. Yeah. Um, I hope that happens. Yeah, mm. yeah,
1: also Gandhi. Gandhi? Yeah, of course, Gandhi, who was a Greek, I'll say. Yeah, I've been reading a book called The Real King, about Martin Luther King, and the tremendous inspiration he got from Mahatma Gandhi and what Gandhi did in India, which is overturn a whole rule that nobody thought was possible, and he did it in a nonviolent way, which was totally
5: radical.
6: Hi, my name name is Owen. Um, This is sort of related to our topic. Um, I see if I can say this and stay calm. So, this is related to loss. I lost uh, loss and grief. I lost a cousin in uh, 1987 to AIDS. And um, my grief seemed to come out of, like, came really quickly after a phone call to his father. And um, I'm trying to stay calm. Um, so I just, I just kind of collapsed on the floor, and kind of shook, and just uh, cried. Um, I don't know <coughs> sorry, I don't know for how long. Um, and I, I guess that's what my body needed to do, and it was grieving. Um, so my question is, how does that fall within Sort of um, a framework for grief um, is that I wouldn't say normal, but I mean, obviously, again, that's what I needed to do. Um, I felt like I mean, is that is that how does that fit into a process of grieving, of grieving as you know, or from a Buddhist point of view, and. Well, is it a complete, I mean, if that's the word, kind of thing.
1: So, given that I was a grief counselor for many years, okay. um, it sounds, of course, grief comes in many forms. Okay. It's not in our control. Right. And so Definitely. not controlling the grief is a very important part of the grieving process. Yes. And finding the balance so we can go out of control is a is a kind of equanimity that comes with Buddhist practice. So I'll say that again, the balance so that we can go into imbalance and be okay with it. And no, that's totally normal. And it's what the human heart needs. And as you were saying, your heart, heart broke. you know, the most one of the famous modern little Buddhist I forget the word. It's uh, Haiku is Heart Broken Open, which was written by Rick Fields, who's a Buddhist practitioner for many, many years before he died. And it's one of the last little poems he wrote, Heart Broken Open. And it doesn't mean we enjoy it. No. Right? No. But it's totally normal and human for our hearts to break in that way, because they're not a thing. And their aliveness is what's important. And so, and it doesn't mean it's the end of practice. It's not the end, isn't the grief. No. The end is having a heart that's totally free.
6: I guess I understand, you're saying, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate that your the insights from grief, expertise with grief. Yeah.
1: Tell me the part you're not
6: appreciating. So so it felt like such an, <laughs> it, it felt like such an overwhelming somatic thing. I just blacked out. Yeah. Just like, well, was that my heart? Was that you know, I was shaking and uh-huh. and just like I, my body couldn't do anything else but yeah. just give in to it. Yeah. And I don't know if I was there for a minute, five minutes, or right. ten minutes okay. on the floor, or half an hour. Well, yeah. I suspect it was shorter rather than longer. Right. But I don't know if it was it must have been heartfelt but I couldn't feel it anywhere because during the blackout I'm just like I, I can't locate it just I'm not sure if I need to
1: but right that's the really important yeah. part we often need to locate things so that it makes it egocentric being yeah. comfortable Well, heart. I mean,
6: look at the heart. I'm just oh. talking about heart okay, water. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, then let me go
1: there, because here's the other piece, which is we think that the heart and the mind and the body are all different. Yeah. okay. Good luck. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's yeah, all exactly. right here. Exactly, yeah. Right, exactly. and so, of course, that kind of expression, which is ego-dystonic, is not easy for us, but it's part of what happens for you, human beings. And so I don't I don't I don't hear anything wrong with what happened to
6: you. Yeah, I guess okay, okay, I'll sort of leave it there. Like, no, there's not there's nothing wrong with that. I just like I feel, sometimes I feel like, well, you know, because I'm in my head a lot, so it's just like it was kind of frightening and just like, well, how do I analyze it? Maybe I just don't need to. Just right. Like maybe what's you what don't. It was.
1: Maybe, maybe you don't. But also, well, you could always investigate a little. Why do you need to to analyze it?
6: Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, that's a good question. Just obviously, it was scary. it's scary. It happened when my father died too. Just like I was. Uh, right. I'm sorry. I don't really mean to go on. It's it's just, okay. I need to it's limit this. But just like again, just letting go. Yeah. Just like the rest of my family are completely right. different. <laughs> if you're pointing
1: at something that's uncomfortable for us as human beings which is certain levels of letting go. And that happens in spiritual practice also. Even in meditation practice. Again, I've said this before, if you read the Progress of Insight, and there's certain there's whole sections of Progress of Insight. It's like, are you kidding? I have to go through this? You, there's no way in hell I want to go through this terror and aversion and all this stuff. But that's actually part of the path to freedom.
6: Okay. Okay.
0: Okay, thank
6: yes,
1: sir, you. So, just to finish your quote. Sure, sure. Yes,
0: wait, you, you, you finish. me yeah. we yeah. yeah. uh, Well, it's just, um, I actually probably can't remember. Some of you might be able to help no, you, me. It's so a Rilke line, huh? The, the, the Rilke. Rilke line, which is um, no feeling is final, just keep going. Nothing. You know that one?
1: No, I don't know that
0: one. Yeah, just feel what you feel. No feeling is fi- final. Just keep going. That's really helpful. <laughs> That's really helpful.
1: So just do a
0: Yeah, so it's time for us to wrap up our evening. And I uh, just really want to appreciate everyone sharing and um, input. And uh, thank you so much. It's been a really. Um, Really great to be able to land into that community sense of connecting around very real things. Um, It's important.
1: Thank you for coming.
0: Oh, thank thank you, thank Thank you. you. Great to have you. Thank you. Okay, so let's just uh, finish by sharing the uh, good energy. It's called punya or blessing energy.
1: Yeah
0: coming together and sharing the Dharma, practicing, and bringing that practice to very real concerns and experiences and processes that we can all relate to um, as we live this life. And particularly remembering this week those that lost their life in The Pulse in Orlando and uh, Joe Cox in England, and to the many... Refugees and beings that are suffering loss of placement, home, comfort, security, loss of life. May we extend compassion and may, in some mysterious way, our practice support well being within ourselves, with each other, and around the world at this time. And it's finishing with this great ancient mantra mani padme hum six seed syllable mantra touching into all the realms of existence carrying this intention of compassion and mercy Thank you.